The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Okay. You home planet kingpins have been on top for a very long time. Maybe too long. You got fat and you got careless. So a young bud like me sees his chance and he takes it. I grab what I can grab. Nothing wrong with that, is there? You did the same thing as me when you was young. Fortunately for you, I am a reasonable man. Since you come to see me today, to uh, hear my side, as you say, I assume that you too wish to be reasonable. You got balls, Carlos. I'll give you that. But you also have one tragic flaw. You don't respect your elders. And this is how you repay us. My friend, you are one sick son of a bitch. Really, you need help. And I got news for you. You and that other psycho, Vlad, may be running things now. But you're no better than the rest of us. So why don't we just cut through it and get back down to business? Good idea. Business-like enough for you, Carlos? Good morning, London. It's Thursday, December 19th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to reach us if you want to join in on the conversation today. Or as always, you can reach us through feedback at justrightmedia.org if you'd care to email us online. And of course, it's our last live broadcast for 2013. We return live on January 9th, I think it is, eh, Robert? Uh, you tell me. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> well, I'll tell you on January It's a whole 8th. year away. <laughs> <laughs> and since we already know we're likely to run out of time before we run out of material <laughs> by the end of the show, I want to make a point of wishing one and all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. In particular, some of the folks I won't be seeing again till our next show, Ed Von Adderkast sitting in the studio there with Sean, working with him there. Hello, Sean. How are you? Also want to mention over the year, we've had Ryan and Chase and Adula and of course Grant and we also want to mention Wayne and Bridget at the parking lot yes <laughs> without whom we would probably never get into the studio <laughs> in time some days <laughs> so Merry Christmas to all of them and a happy holidays to Andy Udman oh gee <laughs> <laughs> okay the insiders will know what that's about yeah. but no doubt many people, uh, you know, will be finding some, you know, what I'm going to talk about today, or I should mention the subject, having mentioned our topics today, you're going to be talking about... Uh, Capitalism you, in space. In space, flowers on Mars. Yes. And also, you, we got some feedback from a teacher on education, reacting to something you said earlier, and this is not what you think. The kind of reaction that yeah, we got. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago yeah. I gave a talk about teacher bashing, mm -hmm. and I gave them a good bashing, and we had a response from a teacher, and it's not 
going to be yeah. what you think. Be interesting. And I want to start off with my theme. I call it No Monopoly on Hating Capitalism. It just never seems to end, Robert. And uh, literally speaking about the game Monopoly came up in an article that I want to deal with shortly. But no doubt many people will be finding some version of the Parker Brothers game Monopoly under their Christmas tree this season. It's, cl it's a classic. You know, you, you get sure. it in so many versions. And if you've already got the traditional Monopoly board, there are a host of others, including, believe it or not, in my own collection of Monopoly games. You know what I've got? I've got the Star Trek, the Next Generation Collector's Edition of Monopoly. It includes eight collectible pewter tokens representing the characters of the show. In the four corners of the board are the traditional free parking, go to jail, go, go collect 200 as you pass, and the in-jail just visiting square. But instead of chance and community chess cards, you get Starfleet orders and Captain's Log. Boardwalk is the queue spot, while Park Place is the Borg Collective, where <laughs> resistance is futile. Mediterranean Ave is Farpoint Station. That's where it starts, right? The railroads are shuttlecrafts, Hawking, Justman, Fenman, and Magellan. <laughs> I also have the Three Stooges Collector's Edition of Monopoly, <laughs> which I'm sure must make uh, some statement about my true range of intellectual pursuits, you know. Uh, again, the corners of the game board are the traditional ones, but instead of the railroads, you have Wrong Brothers Buzzard Biplane, Hook Line and Sinker Delivery Truck, Bronx Taxi Cab, and Fire Engine Number 61. Boardwalk is Lost Arms Hospital, and Park Place is the Cannonball Express. Community Chest is replaced by For Duty and Humanity, while Chance Spot is replaced by I'm a Victim of Circumstance. <laughs> 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 and, of course, I have the traditional English edition Parker Brothers real estate trading game. But in addition to that, I've got a total rip-off version, which does not even have the traditional Monopoly board corners. And that's the I Love London version sold for the benefit of big brothers and big sisters here locally. Have you seen that one? No, never. And uh, on this board, Chance and Community Chess Spaces are replaced by Big Brothers and Big big Sisters in the one square and by Fari Holdings Corporation in the <laughs> other. Okay, The Go Space... Perhaps we should re rename this town yeah, Ferry. Yeah. The ghost space has been uh, replaced by the CAW Local 302 Proud to be Union Start start Space. Jail has been replaced by Wendy's Restaurant with the just visiting portion being replaced with a drive-through part of the restaurant. Sure. Free parking has been replaced by the Siskins Law Firm. And Go to Jail has been replaced by Go to Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of the utilities is London Hydro. The other utility is... Oh, there isn't one. <laughs> it's already a monopoly. <laughs> the rest of the board is a hodgepodge of local businesses and government advertisers, all posing as properties in some kind of real estate trading game. So you can imagine, my, to my surprise and horror, when I see in past weekends, London Free Press, the following headline. Capitalism is like an unfair game of monopoly by Goldwyn Emerson in the December 14th Free Press. And the description under the picture accompanying the article reads, A purely free enterprise system is not an ethical system, and governments should act fairly in their oversight of the economy, creating opportunities for all citizens to be educated, access to health care, and to find jobs, says columnist Goldwyn Emerson. Now, of course, I think exactly the opposite of that. I would say capitalism is the only ethical system of economics out there. But here's what he has to say about it, and I'm just going to comment along the way. And it's going to take the whole first half of the show here, Robert. This is going to be a quick one. I'll put my feet up. Okay. Oh, no, don't do that necessarily. You've got to stay awake for the second half. <laughs> 
One of the best things about capitalism, he writes, and the free enterprise system is that it provides rewards for inventiveness, creativity, entrepreneurship, hard work, and productivity. Capitalism is based on the premise that those who invest their money and energy in projects that improve our economy deserve to profit from their efforts. Capitalists recognize there are risks that business ventures and investments may fail. When they succeed, life is often made better for other sectors of the economy. Now, already, I just have to break here. Already, now, this is his praise of capitalism. And I'm going to have to say he's already got it backwards, which explains a lot of what his criticism is, which will follow. Everything he just wrote there is, is a consequence of capitalism and freedom, which are synonymous, of course, not the premise of, of capitalism. Individual rights are the cornerstone of a free society. That means that no one else in society has any right to your life, to your liberty, to your property. So you've got freedom, responsibility, ownership, property, and that ends up in capitalism. The only reason that capitalism rewards inventiveness, creativity, etc., and all those things he said, is because in a capitalist system, no one has the legal right to rob your inventiveness, your creativity, your entrepreneurship, and all those things. That right has to exist first. You get to keep what you earn. Getting to keep it is the reward. Getting to spend it where you want to spend it is the reward. No one can steal it from you. Thou shalt not steal is one of the pillars of capitalism. Private property rights are the implementation of that. The rights must precede the reward. It doesn't work the other way around. Without the right to keep what we earn, there would be no reward. No one would even bother to be inventive, creative, work hard, or be productive. Why work or expend effort for a reward if it's just going to be taken away from you? And on the other side of the coin, why work or expend effort for the reward if there are thieves and governments who are just going to reward you regardless of your effort? It's a lose-lose situation. This is socialism, communism, fascism, and every other shade of collectivism and statism in between. And that's the world of today. And the reason fewer and fewer people feel positive about the future. As with all theories of plunder and theft, it is predicated on the false belief that the consequences of freedom and capitalism will just continue on as normal, even when the cause that makes the rewards possible, the reward being that you're allowed to keep what you earn, is removed. So, capitalism is a consequence of living in a moral society, not the cause. Doing what is right is the cause. You only get what you pay for, and you pay for what you get. Now, back to Mr. Emerson here. He writes, Unfortunately, there's a downside to a completely free enterprise capitalist system. As a child, I remember playing the board game Monopoly. In this game, each player starts with the same amount of play money. Players invest money when an opportunity is offered either to buy some more property or they may choose not to risk purchasing a particular property. Eventually, one player becomes successful in gaining control of most of the property while the other players struggle to survive financially. In the end, only one remaining player controls all the property and all the other players become bankrupt. At this point, the game of Monopoly ends and even the winner has no more to gain and no one left with whom to play the game. Of course, Monopoly is just a board game, but it reflects the manner in which totally free enterprises work. Oh, for God's sake, man. Unbelievable. <laughs> how, how anyone could be so wrong about something is, is just unfathomable. 
Talk about pick, picking a fixed pie model, wow. a Monopoly board of all things, completely unrealistic and make-believe. The first time I played Parker Brothers Monopoly with my grandson, who beat me basically fair and square four out of five times, really, uh, he, you know, he would have been somewhat between four and six years old or so, and the first thing I explained to him was how Monopoly had absolutely nothing to do with how the real world worked, and he understood that. Monopoly works on throwing the dice, not on making business decisions. You get certain yes-no options with respect to buying unowned property that the dice forces you to make. A, per a person with limited funds in a real capitalist world would never choose to spend a night in Boardwalk Hotel each and every time around the board. <laughs> Welcome to my world of Monopoly. The whole point of Monopoly is to buy up every property you can, not to create wealth for everyone or to live long and prosper, but to protect yourself from another player's monopoly before he destroys you with his, and to get a monopoly yourself to destroy and defeat your opponent by bankrupting him. This is not capitalism and not even close to it. This is centralized government planning and government being in business. That's what I see it as. And once you've, got, you've bankrupt everyone except yourself, how are you going to live, right? Nobody can buy anything you might have to sell, so money's useless, you own it all. And since you own all the property and no other property owners exist, what would be the point of property? <laughs> he also fails to realize yeah. that monopolies only exist by government oh, edict. Oh, we're, we're getting to that point oh, in sorry, a second. Jump no, no, you're okay. Without property and ownership rights, though, outside of your so-called monopoly, the whole concept of property and ownership collapses. That's why when someone wins a monopoly game, the game ends. Having achieved the monopoly, there's no longer a purpose to the game. It has self-destructed, just as socialism does, being based on the same fixed-pie theory, right? Yep. Capitalism, on the other hand, is not a game, but a way of living morally. And it never ends, unless a socialist resorts to the use of physical force and aggression to end it. You know? But not everyone agrees with that, of course. More on Goldwyn Emerson's complete misunderstanding of capitalism and worse, of right and wrong, when we find out why he thinks capitalism is not an ethical system, and we'll be doing that right after this. Well, you remember we said that energy is capital. Ability is capital. When we as employees work for someone else, we're not selling our time, we're selling our services, our ability. When we get paid, if we save a little of our income, we are profiting. And we can become employers if we wish and if we can develop management capabilities. Many of America's greatest industrialists were employees who saved and developed their capabilities. If we do not develop into employers, we still can become producers or capitalists by investing our surplus, our savings, in some enterprise which is producing something. 18 million ordinary Americans own stock in businesses and industries. If I borrowed money from you to make my clay toys, you would become producers, since your capital would help produce my toys. The business world is full of actual examples. General Motors, for instance, is just a group of people who with their dimes and dollars are producing products for sale. There are more than half a million stockholders with their savings invested in General Motors. And why do they invest their dimes and dollars? They want to make a profit. It is a normal, wholesome motivation. But you were saying, may I bring up something mm -hmm. uh, that we were discussing during the commercial? The 
worst thing today is the attacks on ability. The, uh, I call this today's atmosphere the age of envy, actually. And I ask you whether uh, you would be attacked by people for your success. And I don't know whether you want to give the answer to the audience that y you gave me. Yes, yes, I am. Well, that's what I regard as the most immoral thing on earth, to attack a man not for his flaws, but for his virtues. Because to make a success of yourself in any line of rational activity is a great virtue. And the people will attack you for exercising your ability, for hard work, for consistency, for ambition. And they will want to make you feel guilty of it. Mm -hmm. That is the greatest evil according to my philosophy. And I'd say that again. The greatest evil according to your philosophy is to attack an individual because of virtue. What I call it is uh, to experience or act on hatred of the good for being the good. That is attacking people for their virtues, for their achievements, for anything they have which is a value actually. Not for their flaws and not for their evil. In fact, people who preach that are the ones who are mawkish about the evil people, the failures, the liars, the cheats. Everybody who is weak suddenly acquires some kind of value. But anyone who is a success has to be attacked for his success. And that, and of course, is the late great Ayn Rand, upon whose... Um shoulders the whole defense of capitalism in the 20th century practically rested, eh, Robert? Yes, you're not going to get it from uh, conservatives, you're going to get it from Ayn Rand. And what she just said there is very much the exact opposite of what we're going to hear again uh, from Goldwyn Emerson, who we started with before the break there. And he writes here, getting back to the Monopoly game, Let's suppose that a socialist-minded parent is watching his children play Monopoly. The parent observes that most of the children playing become more unhappy and discouraged, while those in the game who have hope of being the one final winner remain optimistic. The parent decides to put the game on pause, while he redis redistributes the money equally, as it was at the beginning of the game. The children who have made poor choices in spending their play money are happy about this new turn of events, but those who made better choices will feel that equal redistribution has been unfair. In real life, under the free enterprise system, those adults who make the best choices with their money may also think that intervening socialist policies are unfair. This occurs when they are expected to redistribute their wealth to poorer people who have made poor choices. On the other hand, in real life, free enterprise competitive policies of capitalism can also seem unfair to those who end up poor and disadvantaged. Now, just to stop there again, I mean, this socialist-minded parent, he's a terrible parent <laughs> if he exists, and he's creating a mentality of entitlement. And if I were going to define socialist-minded parent in this context, I would say it's a parent with no sense of right and wrong, but someone who loves equality of wealth and ownership, and that's it. Nothing else matters. And force. Well, they never admit that, because they don't... I think a lot of people don't even realize that that's what government is when they ask the government to do something. G is for government, right. G is for gun. That's right. And so, if you know, this is almost a form of child abuse. They're teaching their kids that being right and wrong don't matter in the end. Or worse, that being right or being successful will earn you the reward of having your success redistributed you know, to the unsuccessful. And on the other side of the coin, to be a failure will result in reward. 
that's provided by, by the successful. This is the very essence of what we call immorality and injustice. Why play a game? Not life, if there is no winner or loser. Talk about creating boring, pointless activity for kids. And, and to add to this stupidity, you know, it's just amazing. The author offers no justification for doing this. Why? Other than creating, or, or catering rather, to the emotional indulgence of the kids who have had their original money returned to them because they'll feel better. That's what he says. Talk about how not to teach your kids how to deal with loss and with failure. It you know, it's the loss part of the capitalist profit and loss system that socialists can't tolerate. They can't tolerate it. While at the same time, they don't tolerate the profit either. <laughs> help, help. Go figure. What a or don't. Bunch. Because figuring would require keeping score of something, I guess. And he writes again into his conclusion, For example, successful capitalists may profit most when they use up or pollute natural resources that belong to all Canadians. Now he's changing subjects. Now he's throwing the environment in as an argument for theft to equalize your kids playing Monopoly. What has that got to do with anything? It's just one of the regular cards that socialists play. they got no other cards. Is this cross-dressing? It's yeah. not even dressing cross anything. So he, so he writes, So when the one company, through competitiveness, is able to cause similar companies to go bankrupt, the winner will be free to charge exorbitant prices once they have eliminated their competition. Utterly nonsensical. Not true. Not true. Never happened. It is in these situations that democratic governments and capitalist systems ought to become involved for the benefit of all citizens. Good governments that take an interest in acting fairly or ethically will oversee... Which is it? Fairly or ethically? It's not going to be both. Will oversee the progress of the economy. Oversee. Isn't that a nice word? Oversee. With a gun and t gun to your head. This is the overseeing instrument we have here. It requires an overseer. Yeah, we're going to tell you what your prices are, how much you can sell, what your supplies are, who has a license. And he writes, a totally free enterprise system in which the rich get richer and the poor get poorer is not a good ethical system. Through laws and tax policies, governments can intervene so that huge conglomerates will not easily put their competitors into bankruptcy. Ethical governments can provide opportunities for the poorest among us to have good health, care, education. Of course, he gets into the whole housing, education. That's why we need government. And that's why you have to limit free enterprise. What? How does that even relate? If you want to provide it, why don't you just go and steal money from people? You know, this Don't is, even stop with, what's with the free enterprise stuff? This is internally consistent it for is. a man whose ethics is based on sacrifice, self-sacrifice. That's true. It is not based on... Um, his, his ethics are not based on rational self-interest. So he's, he's taken the logical course for an ethic of uh, self-sacrifice. Self well, he's going to get what he's... He, we've already got that. The problem, he's doing the same thing as every critic of capitalism does. They look at socialism, they don't realize that it's socialism, and they say, oh, that must be capitalism. The governments are already controlling all this stuff. How come it's not helping? Yes. How come poverty is getting worse the more of a welfare state we have? How come our prices are going through the roof? How come nobody can afford to live? How come we have people sitting in food banks? More now in our welfare state than we ever, ever had. I was had. listening to Andy's show this morning where he's talking about the food bank and uh, how more yeah. and more people are going to the food bank. Hey, we live in a socialist world. We live with Kathleen Wynne as our premier in the liberal yeah, government for go. many, many years. How come they haven't fixed it yet? Well, go figure that one out. <laughs> now, you, now, here's the ultimate 
I don't know if he's fooling himself or what, but he says, I'm not advocating an entirely socialist system, but rather a balanced system between free enterprise and socialist safety nets. This is a tall task requiring politicians who will work full-time continuously. It is a task that will not be achieved when politicians choose to sit in Parliament for only short periods of the year. It is a task that is not likely to be accomplished when, regardless of the political party, Parliament is prorogued for months at a time. What do you need Parliament to steal for? You can just pass a law, close Parliament, and keep the theft going 24-7. We don't just charge taxes while, while Parliament's in session. <laughs> and he goes, I understand that being a good politician also means hard work outside Parliament. Being an ethical politician is a full-time task in a capitalist system, period. Wow. Isn't that amazing? It's gobsmacked. Anyway, it's the exact thought. Look, at capitalism is the proof of morality in action. All other isms are evidence of immorality in action because all other isms are based on obviating consent and not protecting it. You know, can humanity not think of a way to help those in need, if indeed that's even anyone's real objective when they talk about this, without stealing from or robbing from those who aren't in need? Is there any way to do it? What, have we never figured it's that out? It's called volunteerism. <laughs> no. You know, <laughs> and Monopoly is played on a board. There are no unfair games of Monopoly. The rules are quite clear in advance. The person who plays according to the rules and wins the game is the winner. Plain and simple. Totally fair. The only unfairness possible in Monopoly is when someone cheats. And that's exactly why Emerson thinks that capitalism is like an unfair game of Monopoly. A game of Monopoly played without winners and where there's an outside authority who intervenes and equalizes all winners and losers. For him, by his own description, a fair game of Monopoly and of life is the one in which the winners are constantly deprived of their rewards. And I call that completely unjust. It's, it's, it's madness. It's irrational. I can't even relate to it. Now, capitalism is not played on a board. Capitalism creates its own board as the game is played. The board expands and it contracts. Ooh, I'm giving somebody an idea, a game idea here. As the wealth of everyone expands and contracts. The objective of the game in capitalism would have to be changed to making the winner, I guess, because there would never be one, the guy with the most chips in the game by a given period or given number of moves, say, the guy who gets richest in ten moves or something, I don't know. Because no one would lose necessarily in the sense of ending up at the end of the game with less than you started with, though that might indeed be the case. But the winner would have to be measured against some relative, not absolute measure. Huh. Just like real life, poverty and wealth, they're relative, and that's the reason why. Because the pie always expands and contracts. And so you're, you're, you're never comparing the same thing to the same thing. And, and let us never forget, or learn for the first time if you've never heard this one before, every monopoly is a government creation. I was challenged with this, just like you were about to say earlier, Robert. There are no natural monopolies in the sense of prohibiting competition within a certain field of trade. There are economic barriers to entering a field where a single or two or three big providers are already serving that market at an affordable price. But these circumstances are always temporary, even with General Motors and companies like that, especially in the face of individual freedom and technological advancements. That's the reality of capitalism and is also why politicians and socialists can never predict economic outcomes or consequences properly because it's all based on all their fantasy assumptions think of every think of every uh, monopoly you can think of i was challenged with this in the 70s and i came up with oh yeah there's bell canada well they 
They got a government monopoly license. Ontario Hydro, government monopoly. Our education system, government monopoly. Our health care, single-payer system, government monopoly. Ontario Power Generation, London Hydro, all government monopolies. Canada Post won't deliver anymore. Liquor Control Board. Yep. Each of these industries and areas of economic activity would be a wealth creation and job mecca if we only would let them go. Anyways... There you go. If you want to read all the common fallacies about uh, monopolies and capitalism, check it out in uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Now, I understand we're going to take capitalism into outer space now, are we, Robert? We are. There's a couple of clips coming up from an old George Powell movie, 1955, called Conquest of Space. Quite a, a good movie, I thought, which dealt with the theme of the ethics of terraforming or uh, going into space. Yes, Just the they very talked about of a lot of modern things in that old, old movie. Yeah, it was actually a really engaging movie. We see a crew of astronauts on a trip to Mars headed by a captain whose religious beliefs sort of get in the way. I don't remember you reading the Bible so often, sir. It's the one book you never really get through reading. Man's every move, his every thought, his every action is in there somewhere. Recorded or predicted. Every move except this one. According to the Bible, man was created on the earth. Nothing is ever mentioned of his going to other planets. Not one blessed word. At the time the Bible was written, it wouldn't have made much sense, would it? Does it now? The biblical limitations of man's wanderings are set down as being the four corners of the earth. Not Mars or Jupiter or infinity. The question is, Bonnie, what are we? Explorers? Or invaders? Invaders? Of what, sir? The sacred domain of God. His heavens. To man, God gave the earth. Nothing else. But this taking of of other planets. It's almost like an act of blasphemy. But why? They belong to no one else. We don't know that. But look, sir, it couldn't be just an accident that at the very time when man's resources on Earth are reaching an end, man develops the ability to leave his own world and seek replenishment on other planets. The timing is what fascinates me. It's too perfect to be accidental. Those other planets might already be tenanted. I don't think so. The universe was put here for man to conquer. I don't know. I, I just don't know. Why don't you try to get a little sleep, sir? Huh? Oh. Yes, I, uh, I think I will. Good night, Barney. Good night, Father. Spaceship to wheel, we hear you. 
Come in. Over. Getting bigger all the time, isn't it, sir? Yes, Sergeant. The planet and the blasphemy. The what, sir? Spaceship. Spaceship. Wheel calling spaceship. This is Fenton. We've been calling you constantly for weeks. Come in. Over. Spaceship to wheel. This is Captain Merritt. Stand by for the general. Merritt speaking. Here's the report. Lost course for several days due to near collision with asteroid. But we can still reach destination as plotted. Which may be Mars or hell. This voyage is a cursed abomination. If it were possible, I'd come back now, return the ship to Earth and blow it up. General, please. Together with all plans in existence for building another. We're committing man's greatest sacrilege. And we can't stop. To Mars or to hell, that is the question. And terraforming might be the answer. Terraforming is the transformation of the environment of another planet to do something to resemble that of Earth, or at the very least change the environment to make it suited better for life. may not be able to make it totally Earth-like, but if you can change the um, atmosphere or the conditions of another planet, that's called terraforming. Now, Mars, as we all know, has a very cold and tenuous atmosphere made up primarily of carbon dioxide. And the pressure is so low that liquid water would vaporize or boil away. In other words, if a man were exposed to the atmosphere of Mars, even standing on the surface, it would be uh, a race to see what would kill him first, his blood boiling or asphyxiation. Now, the planet is completely hostile to life. That's not to suggest, of course, that it didn't have life earlier in its past because conditions then were much better. The atmosphere was thicker and the pressure was higher. Liquid water even existed on the planet, so maybe life did take a foothold back then. But today, Mars, to the best of our knowledge, is devoid of all life. It's a barren wasteland. In some people's eyes, it holds a future for man. Some with visions see it teeming with millions of human beings in the future in buildings built into the rock and dust, cities protected by domes to keep air in and harmful radiation out. There will be tourists, hotels, mines, industry and commerce, capitalism. Martian cities not unlike the booming American cities of the 19th century springing up on the western frontier. And this is a vision I have. But unfortunately, I won't live long enough to see it come to fruition, if it happens at all. Because there are people out there who don't share such a positive vision for man on the red planet. There are some who believe that the concept of a pristine Mother Nature devoid of man is the natural way of things. That places like the Moon and Mars should be left alone as lifeless wastelands, unsullied by the hand of man. Now, these people, these environmentalists, these biocentrists, as they are called, are actually being listened to, to the impoverishment of all. A biocentrist believes that human beings are not inherently superior to other living things. As David Suzuki made plain many years ago, to him and people like him, the common slug is no different than man. While man is certainly, <laughs> I know you laugh, but it's actually true. There's a video uh, clip of him out there speaking to uh, other, uh, his students, basically saying exactly 
that. Well, where do we human beings go to round up all these slugs? <laughs> okay. Maybe we'll be rounded up by the slugs. That's what concerns me. I don't know. Gee. Well, man is certainly linked to other life forms. I, I, you know, there's, there's no question about that. We live in an environment of life. Um, a biocentrist sees no ethical difference in the death of a man versus the death of an ant. To a biocentrist, man is just an animal with no inherent superiority over other life forms. It may be the case that biocentrists themselves may not be superior to a patch of slime mold, but there are those <laughs> of us who think that man's unique ability to reason puts us slightly ahead. In fact, it would be ironic for those naturalists to accept the nature of every other creature on earth except for that of the nature of man. People on the left who believe that man is no different than any other life form have pushed for treaties such as the Antarctic Treaty System, which sets aside Antarctica as a scientific preserve, or the Protocol on Environmental Protection to the Antarctic Treaty, which was signed in 1991 and entered into force in 1998. Now, this agreement prevents development and prohibits all activities relating to mineral resources except scientific. You know, it made me think when you brought up the subject, is it possible to terraform Earth? Why don't we terraform we do the, it all the, the, time. The, the uninhabitable areas of Earth? But that would be completely contrary to yeah. all global warming, global cooling, weather, weather change uh, theories, all of them. Yeah. And, it, and it belies the, the, the purpose under. It's not about the environment or even life, is it? There's something else going on there when they start thinking like this. It's hatred going on here. Well, let's take yeah. this to outer space because the United Nations actually has an outer space treaty and that says, quote, states shall avoid harmful contamination of space and celestial bodies, unquote. Interpretation? Anyone's guess, I think, but uh, if you consider that man, in order to live, produces waste, how could Mars be colonized if contamination of any kind is prohibited? How can Mars be terraformed, made Earth-like, if we can't put into its atmosphere the chemicals necessary to hold in the heat and protect us from radiation? Chemicals like more CO2, which, by the way, is in abundance at the poles, or other greenhouse gases, which could, in the process, uh, in a process would, would, which would admittedly uh, take thousands of years, make the pressure on Mars suitable for life without spacesuits. Can you imagine? It'll still be like uh, a... It would still lack breathable oxygen, of course, but theoretically you could survive in a shirt-sleeve environment only while carrying a source of oxygen. If only man was allowed to contaminate, in quotes, the thin atmosphere of Mars, but we're not allowed to. The UN Outer Space Treaty would prohibit such life-giving alteration of this barren cold rock out of sympathy for what? Lifelessness? A pristine, natural Martian environment? Or simply and I think this hits the mark, out of a hatred of man for being man. To go back to even, paraphrase Even beyond rant. that, a hatred of life itself. Yes. It, 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 that's, that's the only single thing I can see that would motivate any thinking like that. That's, that is irrational beyond irrational. Rand said hatred of the good for being the good, it, yeah. but this is hatred of the man for being man. Mm. It is self-hatred. I wonder where that comes from. Got yeah. <laughs> it's our nature to alter nature. That is what defines us. I sit today in a comfortable studio while it's freezing outside. I can read with electric lights where it should be dark in here, and all because we alter our environment to suit us. If it weren't for our ability to alter nature, we would all probably still be living in a small, naked tribe of savages clinging to survival somewhere in the Rift Valley of Africa where we evolved. Perhaps this is uh, what the framers of such documents, such as the Outer Space Treaty or the Antarctic Treaty System, envision. 
the stifling of man's ambition and his spread of humanity to other parts of the world and worlds beyond. This mentality certainly is consistent with the leftist ideology suffocating mankind in every country of the globe today. It is the same leftist anti-man ideology which keeps most of us from prospering as individuals. There is talk these days with the success of private space launch companies such as Virgin Galactic and Space Exploration Technology, Technologies Corporation or SpaceX for short, that we would soon see the mining of asteroids or the moon. But consider this clause from the Outer Space Treaty, quoting, The exploration and use of outer space shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries and shall be the province of all mankind, unquote. Now, would a commercial mining operation on the moon be required to share its patented technology with its competitors to fit in with this uh, treaty? Would it be required to give away the ores it mines to mankind, or would it simply sell it to those willing and able to pay, as mining companies do now on Earth? If patents and profits are prohibited in a communistic lunar environment, there'd be no incentive for any exploration uh, or extraterrestrial uh, terraforming at all. The effects of the biocentrist United Nations Outer Space Treaty is to outlaw capitalism in space. Capitalist pigs in space. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had to throw that in there. Last week, communist China, if we can still call it that, by the way, because it's changing rapidly, landed a rover on the moon. It I saw that, yeah. yeah First since 1976. Cool, That's amazing that we haven't landed anything on the moon since then. Yeah. We being humanity. Mm -hmm. Not the amoeba and the dogs and the cats, just for those people who don't <laughs> think there's a difference between the species. <laughs> yeah, let's see your dog <laughs> land on the moon by himself. Yeah. It begs the question, though, this new landing, this new rover, can any nation lay claim to any area of the moon which they have uh, explored? Will the Apollo 11 site, for example, be scavenged by future astronauts from other countries, or will it remain as the property of, the, of NASA in the United States? Or would, it, or would it fall under salvage rules? I don't know. That's interesting. Now, according to the Outer same Space as, Treaty... As we do on Earth. The person who... You know, it's the homestead principle. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you can work it. Of course, what you're talking about now is the opposite of that. And if that's the way we're going into space, we aren't going to be in space for centuries. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. No, according to the yeah. Outer Space Treaty, uh, quoting again, Outer Space... We had a treaty like that for Earth, when we first went into low Earth orbit. They said, oh, we're not going to use orbits for anything but humanity. Now, what's up there? So many satellites, they can't even count them. They've got to keep track of the garbage. And they're all privately owned for commercial purposes. Yeah. So it's all BS to begin with. Yeah. Now, according yeah. to the Outer Space Treaty of the United Nations, quoting here, outer space is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means, unquote. Just think of the implications of that. Now, mind you, as you were just alluding to, the Outer Space Treaty will probably be ignored by the more powerful nations. But it does it make you be. think of some scenarios in the not-too-distant future when private companies and smaller governments look to explore a new space with no national boundaries whose law prevails in matters of disputes. Apparently, the United Nations will be the arbiter. Imagine the United Nations dominated by savage, brutal regimes such as China, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, and their ilk, having say in matters of law over Canadians or Americans in space or on Mars or on the moon. The thought just is chilling. We must rethink our involvement in organizations like the United Nations if we're ever to have a positive future 
in space. We must rescind our approval of such agreements as the Outer Space Treaty if Mars or the Moon is ever able to support life and be more than just a sterile scientist's test tube. But that's socialism for you. That's the left for you. That's the biocentric view for you. So let's just uh, cut to a clip here where we talk about planting a flower on Mars. And after that, back to teacher bashing. <laughs> Just about finished, Captain. I think these soil and mineral samples will prove that life is possible on Mars. It can be done, sir. All the elements are in those sacks, even air and water in other forms. Until now, this little planet has been alone, friendless, all drawn up into itself. So it's crusty, dried up, and unyielding. But with patience, and understanding and hard work, it could be made to blossom. I wish I had your faith, Emoto. Hey, fellas! Come! Captain! Come! Look! 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 It grew! A flower! A seed from Earth growing here! Look at it! A flower on Mars! But um, I think that the concern we have, too, with, with the public education system, as, as you say, is it's, it's been significantly eroded by finances. But it doesn't help sort of to peck away at it mm -hmm. and then take, spend money elsewhere. Let's support a public system that we value, uh, that's, that everyone has a right to attend. Choices, yes, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. disagree that parents, parents, if they want something else, have a, have a, have a choice. But I do believe that in a democratic society, we have a responsibility to contribute to one universally accessible public system that's, as I said, that's accessible and everybody has a right to attend. But who's to say, though, that these tax credits, Emily, will take a dime away from the public school system? Well, there's a certain pocket of money, and that's the education funding. Those tax credits are taken out of that that box of that block of money. It's not in addition to the amount of money. It's part of the whole package in terms of the the, the Ministry of Education's budget. So in fact, it does erode. Uh, it's taken away out of the block of money, so it does erode the public system. But why would that erode the public system any more than, let's say, if um, the uh, government of Ernie Eves decided to build a new highway at an expense of like $40 billion? Well, what, with the highway, what I, Ernie Eves would probably do is... Uh, <laughs> It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, by the way. I was just using no, that as a hypothetical. No, but, yeah. you, but, but well, you, you may not be so far off. So far, so far off. Um, I, I, but we believe that anything that, that takes money away from a public system, uh, if people want to have choices, they can pay for their choices after, but there must be a system that's supported and valued by, by society and government. And that's uh, Emily, Emily Noble who uh, appeared on the Ronda, Ronda London show back in 2002. As a matter of fact, I, I followed her up directly after that. Yeah. And you can see the clip of uh, me following that up on my, uh, my blog site, robertvaughn.ca. I got the video up for that. Now, Emily Noble, 
uh, became, five years after that interview, became the uh, Canadian Teachers Federation president. And she was also president of the 70,000 member Elementary Teachers Federation of, the, uh, of Ontario, or the ETFO. Um, she was a school administrator and holds uh, an MED from OISE. And she sat on the Executive Council of the Canadian Labour Congress. Now, the reason I say this is to show you some connections here. The Canadian Labour Congress... you got quite a chart there. Yes, the Canadian Labour Congress was created out of uh, a merger of the Workers' Unity League and the Canadian Congress of Labour. And if you just go look into the history of these two organizations, I'll quote from Wikipedia here. With the Canadian Congress of Labour, the situation was more complex. As a child of the Great Depression and the international romance with revolution in the decades immediately after 1917, Communist Party of Canada labour activists had taken leadership positions in several key unions and local of CCL-affiliated unions. Indeed, the Workers' Unity League, again a precursor to the Canadian Labour Congress, uh, was a group of communist-led unions in the 1930s with cons uh, considerable organizational success. The uh, Workers' um, Unity League merged with the Canadian Congress of, La of Labour later on, and the Canadian Congress of Labour later became the Canadian Labour Congress <laughs> in 1956. So, the communist roots of the Teachers' Federation are laid bare. Now, I only mention this because on November 28th, I talked about how public school teachers must be held responsible for facilitating the Marxist agenda of the system they work in. And um, in reply to that show, we received the following comment on our blog site from Carl. Quote, I've listened to the show with great interest because I'm currently a teacher in the French public system. I completely agree with everything you said. If I may add, in my opinion, the teacher, teaching of writing, reading, and mathematics are not too bad for now. But when it comes to social studies or sciences, the things they dictate to us to teach our kids are absolutely disturbing. The natural sciences are mainly focused on pollution, recycling, global warming, etc., while the social studies are focused toward progressive liberal themes. Every time I substitute in a class and I see in my daily planning that I have to teach these things, I feel like a prostitute betraying everything I believe in. My margin of action is so limited. When I have to teach um, about water or resource preservation, for example, I try to focus the main argument on cost savings for their parents, even if the teaching material says nothing to support it. It's a mess. My question to you guys is what should I do? What should someone who loves teaching do when his opinions and his margin of action are so limited? Private schools are off, often teach the very same things as public schools, and they aren't that many. And there aren't that many, anyways. I knew I would be stuck in this situation before I decided to choose my profession, but I don't see myself having any other career. Thanks, and continue the great work. Well, thank you for the comment, Carl. And thank you for the confirmation of what was said on the show on the November 28th. It's important that good teachers take a stand at some point and at least voice their objections to the falsehoods they are forced to teach in the state education system. And to backtrack uh, just a little, I've said on this program several times that it is not the function of a proper government to be involved in the business of education in any way. But that being said, just because our government chooses to provide educational services, there is no real reason why such services have to be uniformly Marxist 
or leftist, if you prefer, in their pedagogy. No reason, of course, other than a government who thinks that it's the role to provide for the education of its citizens is inherently a socialist government by definition. And therefore, to have a socialist theory of pedagogy prevailing uh, in such a system, it stands to reason. Now, as to the question of what you should do, Carol, personally, it sounds like you're doing what you can already. You're mitigating the damage by soft-pedaling the Marxist agenda and focusing, when you can, on aspects of the curricula which can be taught in less political ways, while making the material more relevant to your students. You obviously do not fit into the description of what I called a facilitator of Marxism. If I would presume to label you for your efforts, it would be to call you a mitigator of <laughs> Marxism. You are doing what many parents have to do when they realize that their children's minds are being damaged by the public school curriculum. They sit them down at home and tell them the other side of the story. They tell them to think for themselves and that just because something is written in a textbook that it has to be true, that it does not have to be true, and that teachers can make mistakes too. It's unfortunate that the teaching profession has been twisted and debased into a propaganda machine for the left, but that, unfortunately, is the reality of today's public education system. The fact there are teachers out there like yourself who are willing to recognize the fraudulent nature of the school system they work in and who are trying to reduce the harm to the children in their care is hopeful. I say continue on doing what you're doing if it makes you happy. If you can find creative ways to circumvent the message of the progressives in your lessons, then please continue to do so. But... If at some point the system is so corrupted that you find you hate to get out of bed and go to work, then I'd suggest you reconsider working in the public school system. Your own personal happiness was, must always come first, even if it means that your students will have to do without you. I could never suggest someone should sacrifice their happiness to teach the children of parents who are ultimately responsible for putting their children in a school system which has as its goal the destruction of their minds. And I realize your options are limited. You can work in the, you know, in your vocation, taking what little pleasure you can in circumventing a fraudulent curriculum. You can look for a job as a teacher in, as you say, the very small market of private schools. You can try and find some other creative way to use your skills in the marketplace. Or you can do the most drastic thing of all and shrug like the men in, of the mind did in Atlas Shrugged and perhaps work at something outside your vocation while perhaps tutoring on the side to children of parents who recognize your value. They're tough choices, and a lot of people have to make them every day, not just teachers. And unfortunately, you're not the first person I've personally heard from with that dilemma, and I do wish you luck. Any comments on that, Bob? Good advice, Robert. I, was, I, I had no idea what you were going to come up with there, and you came up with a very good answer. You know, I, I, I hear from so many people in so many professions that are so government controlled and going to work for them is a hell every day they're just not working in, in they don't think their profession is you know properly ethical the way they should be de dealing with things and, and it, it's something i keep hearing over and over and over again especially in these professions and it's a brave thing for someone to even write to us and tell us about it that's what i think it's true yes and like i say i do wish uh Carl, all the best of luck in that particular problem. So, I think that's all we have time for this show and this year. Well, so, 2013, gone. As, as we leave, I'm going to have to wish everybody a Merry Christmas to all, and to all a be right, act right, do right, think right, and we'll see you next year. <laughs> okay, okay, see you. Fade into color, color into black and white Under the bedclothes, a 
Bernard, is it important? I have to finish these Cabinet Defence papers. I'm afraid this is much more urgent, Minister. What is it? Your Christmas cards, Minister. Uh, <laughs> they cannot be postponed any longer. Oh, right. By the way, Bernard, you were going to advise me what presents it would be suitable to give to the private office. Uh, well, of course, that's entirely up to you, Minister. Bottles of sherry for the Assistant Secretaries, large boxes of House of Commons mints for the Diary Secretary and the Correspondent Secretary, and small boxes of House of Commons mints for the rest. What about my personal private secretary? Well, oh, that's me. <laughs> ah, yes, of course. What should I give you? Well, you don't have to give me anything. Well, I know that, Bernard, but I'd like to. Oh, Minister. Well, anything, really. Does that? Well, really, I would like a surprise. <laughs> what sort of surprise should I give you? A bottle of champagne's the customary surprise. 